Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I would very much like Hay Fever to fuck off please. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm genuinely thinking of stealing my neighbour's dog. For good or bad reasons. Because she is absolutely adorable. Mm-hmm. This is the Cocker Spaniel. Oh, with the like ears. six months old. That you can't stop thinking about. I can't, I can't stop thinking about his ears. <laughs> can't stop thinking about the fact if you click your finger, it walks around you in a circle and then sits in front of you like that. Yeah, that's cute. I do that, though. <laughs> Mick. <laughs> Come here, Mick. Let, let me put your ears in my mouth. Anytime, mate. This Anytime. just got really weird. <laughs> this, is, this has got what I like to call Tracy Jordan. And I'm Jen Offord. And on my way here, I saw a man with a parrot on his shoulder. And he didn't even appear to be uh-huh. a pirate. Later on, Natasha Devon is back and she is chatting to us about anti-Semitism and the Labour Party. We talked to Georgie Laming about why a big win for Generation Rent is a big win for a generation of renters. Libby Lybird chats to us about her new play, Fighter, and I talked to Sarah Train, one of Kick It Out's professional clubs of quality officers, about racism in football. And in Dunleavy Does Dystopia, we're off to the not-too-distant future with Soylent Green. Yum. But first... (laughs) Polite Twitter, a Texas horror story, and the colour turquoise. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where winter appears to have come again so we can stalk the news like a white walker around the proverbial wall or a Nunziata Reese Mogg in the bargain bin of Sports Direct. She's really she's really sopping it to the elite, <laughs> isn't she? Oh yeah. Staggering Brexit news as a Twitter debate about the role of erstwhile pig nonce David Cameron in the whole shit show managed to stay nuanced and polite. Yep, you heard me, on Twitter, a place that can go from lols to binfire in a heartbeat. When India Knight decided to tweet that she didn't particularly blame Cameron for where we're at, and if anyone has any information on where exactly that is, then please do let Theresa May know, India couched it with lone, freakishly unpopular opinion because, let's face it, she's an opinionated woman on Twitter, so no stranger to a pylon. What happened next? Well, it was a polite and interesting conversation where people with different opinions exchanged views. There have never been such times. Wowzers. I think she's lying, Jen. I think so too. I'm going to tweet that. Yeah, don't check it. The launch of Nigel Farage's imaginatively named Brexit Party last week didn't go as smoothly as he might have hoped. Although, to be fair, he still looked smugger than a man who's failed to get elected to Westminster seven times or has made friends with arguably the even less charming Rhys Mogg should ever have cause to look, regardless. The party, in case you're wondering, is using a sort of turquoise colour for branding purposes, a colour which David Icke could have warned them it's hard to find clothes in that aren't shell suits. And it's sort of blue, but a bit shitter, in my opinion, so blue gone bad. Those clever bastards that led by donkeys, an anti-Brexit campaign group, were quicker off the mark than old Nige and got in their first to register web address, thebrexitparty.com, as a platform for their own activism. The site encourages visitors to register to vote for the European elections, which we will now participate in on May the 23rd. May I also encourage you to do the same. No Brexit from me this week. So let's get off X of cognitive dissonance and a nation divided vibe from the story of WikiLeaks founder, a man who won't clean up after his cat, (laughs) Julian Assange. Let's start with the shadow Home Secretary, Diane Abbott. 
who called for the government to block Assange's extradition to the US and later went on Radio 4 to make John Humphreys look like a <laughs> feminist, saying, mm. and I quote, We all know what this is about. It's not the rape charges, serious as they are. It's about the WikiLeaks and all of that embarrassing information about the activities the American military and security services made public. Asked three times about the sexual offence claims against Assange by two Swedish women, she said the charges were never bought, which is correct, because that's how the law works in Sweden. Abba, and indeed Jeremy Corbyn, who I feel like calling Costello now I've written it like that, found themselves at odds with many Labour colleagues. A letter coordinated by Labour's Stella Creasy and Jess Phillips, because of course it was, called for the Home Secretary to prioritise action that would allow Assange to be extradited to Sweden. It was signed by 70 MPs and peers from Labour, the SNP, Lib Dems, and all 11 Change UK MPs. I can't be doing with that name. Do you know what? Every time I hear it, Change, it makes me think of shape the way you want it to be. Is that the first time Hannah's sung on the podcast? I think it might be. It better not be the last. That was delightful. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty scary news last week, if you live in social housing, after a man claimed his housing provider had extended his probationary period as punishment after he publicly criticised them. 42-year-old Thomas Reams went public on segregated facilities in his block run by Southern Housing shortly before he was due to sign a five-year tenancy agreement with them. In an interview he gave to The Guardian, he complained that social tenants in his block in Hackney Wick had no access to lifts. Shortly thereafter, he was told he could not sign the tenancy agreement due to separate allegations from the last 12 months. After speaking to the newspaper, and that he and his family, including his heavily pregnant wife, would be monitored for a further six months. Reams claims that at no point over the past 12 months were any of those issues raised with him. And further to this, he also received a letter that reminded him... Please, can you also ensure that your conduct over social media in regards to legacy house matters is deemed as appropriate? Southern Housing denied allegations by Mr Reams that they were attempting to bully tenants into keeping quiet, but said, as an organisation, from time to time we remind residents that comments on social media should always be considerate, as they are subject to the same laws that govern other forms of public behaviour. We offer this advice as a matter of support and goodwill. Fucking hell. Remember when we interviewed Mother Jones's Hannah Leventover about Roe v. Wade? And she said the largest threat to women's reproductive rights in the US was from chipping away at the sides rather than a full frontal attack. Well, welcome to Gilead, motherfuckers, as politicians in several states do their darndest to ruin the lives of women. First up, Texas, where Tony Tinderholt, a Republican, Wonderful name, Hmm. It's like dating app otter is the literal (laughs) translation of that. Anyway, he's aiming to introduce a bill to criminalise all abortions with no exceptions for rape or for incest. This would make it possible to charge a woman with homicide for having the procedure, a crime that carries the death penalty in the state. Oh, my God. It would make people, and I quote, consider the repercussions of having sex, said Tinderholt. And by people, he means women. And by repercussions, he means death. (laughs) It's currently seen as unlikely that the bill will pass, but it makes it no less terrifying to know that some cunt is trying. Meanwhile, in Alabama, a law is being proposed that would make carrying out an abortion at any stage of pregnancy punishable by 10 to 99 years in jail. Which I don't know if that's better than death or not. And how do you measure any point in the pregnancy? 
at any point in the pregnancy. It said that it, it literally says in the wording of the bill that the minute that you know that they are pregnant, any actions to stop them being pregnant, which is ridiculous because one doesn't generally like seek out abortion medication unless you actually already know you're pregnant. Well, they might now, mightn't they, which would be, I'm sure, not very good for them. No. Again, there are no exemptions in this bill in the case of rape or incest. Terry Collins, a Republican, Natch, who is the bill sponsor, and incidentally a woman, said, quote, hopefully it takes it all the way to the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. And there you have it. When Hannah mentioned this story, she said, I've got no finish for this apart from absolute fuming rage. And that seems the right finish, the right response to it. Is this to is be this fucking is livid. Bad. This, yeah. this is genuinely really, really bad. Okay, let's have a quick look at the latest well intentioned but misguided gimmick when it comes to assuring consent around sex. Argentine sex toy maker Tulipan has created the world's first consent condom which requires the consenting partners to open the packet together because it takes four hands to get to the rubber sheath within. And you might be thinking, come on, Noonan, that sounds like fun times ahoy. Don't be such a Buzz Killington. And you'd be right. I am a Buzz Killington. But hear me out. One, making condoms harder to get at is not going to increase the use of condoms. Two, rapists and predators tend not to be too fussed about wearing a condom. Three, putting on a condom doesn't equal automatic consent from there on in. It's almost as if sex can come with a truckload of complexity and emotion, or, for far too many, fear and pressure, for a crystal maze condom wrapper to ensure everyone's safe. Celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay had some strong-ish words for restaurant critic Angela Hoyt last week after she accused him of cultural appropriation. Hoyt's criticism came after a preview event for his new restaurant, Lucky Cat which was billed as an authentic Asian eating house last week, which she referred to as a real-life kitchen nightmare. According to The Guardian, Hoi made a number of Instagram posts over the course of the event on which she commented, for example, Japanese, Chinese, it's all Asian, who cares? Responding to Hoi's comments, which he lambasted as offensive, personal and hugely disrespectful, Ramsey said Hoi lacked professional integrity, which I've always found a good way to deal with people pointing out they might be more personally knowledgeable on a subject than myself. In an Instagram post, Ramsey added, Gordon Ramsay restaurants do not discriminate based on gender, race or beliefs, and we don't expect anyone else to. That cultural appropriation... Is, is big in food at the moment, isn't it? It's a big topic. It's a hot topic. Is it? It's a hot potato in the food world. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, I mean, we culturally appropriated Indian food yeah. for like the last 50 years and that's all gone very well and nobody seems to mind that, do they? The word authentic when used in cooking is, I think it's tricky. She also complained that she was the only yes. uh, Asian person there in like 30, 40 guests. Yeah. At the authentic Asian eatery. So, what would make you sue your parents? I feel like I've I've possibly got enough ammunition, particularly on one side, but I just can't be asked to be honest with you. My mum lost my record collection, which I'm quite angry with. Really? My entire vinyl collection, which I left at her house, and she tipped after she had a flood. Is that, or is that not as bad as something that's just happened in Michigan? Because of course it has. One 40-year-old is going after his parents in court for tossing away (laughs) his extensive pornography collection. The man, who has not been named in reports, moved in with his parents for 10 months after a divorce, because of (laughs) course he did, and when they later dropped his stuff off, 
because of course they did, at his new house, he discovered that his porn collection, which he values at almost $30,000 and was contained in 12 boxes, was missing. Oh, I was going to ask that, but until I knew about the boxes, I was wondering if they just meant to throw one away, but they were all stuck together. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm telling you, if I'd asked my dad to carry 12 boxes of anything up the stairs to my new house, they would have been thrown away. There could have been anything in their money. It would have been gone. His father has claimed that he did it for his son's good, which, given the state of his love life, might well be right. (laughs) But his son is now suing for $87,000, which I think we can all agree is a literal wanker move. I want to know, $30,000 worth of porn, right? That leaves $57,000 worth of what? Sadness. Upset, sadness. Frustration. Has he not got got an internet connection? Anyone want some good news? Yes, please. Yes, please. In the centre of a distant galaxy, 300 million trillion years away, a black hole just posed for its first ever photo. By humans, anyway. It took a worldwide effort to capture the image, with eight telescopes from around the globe working together and combining to create the Event Horizon Telescope, a virtual Earth-sized telescope that captured the super-sharp image. The black hole image was made possible by 29-year-old Dr Katie Bowman, The data the EDT captured was stored on hundreds of hard drives that were flown to central processing centres in Boston, Massachusetts and Bonn, Germany. And Dr. Booman's method of processing this raw data was said to be instrumental in the creation of the striking image. She spearheaded a testing process whereby multiple algorithms with, quote, different assumptions built into them attempted to recover photo from the data. But she was keen to share credit, saying, we're a melting pot of astronomers, physicists, mathematicians and engineers, and that's what it took to achieve something once thought impossible. And in other good news, Nicola Sturgeon. (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when we scream into the sky, why is it so hard to believe women? And the reply, over decades now, seems to be simply, dunno, just is. Let's talk about Shana Grice, the 19-year-old murdered by her stalker ex, Michael Lane, in August 2016, despite her repeatedly reporting Lane to the police. Two police officers, one now retired, are facing disciplinary action after Shana was fined for wasting police time before she was murdered by her stalker. While it's great that gross misconduct proceedings are taking place, Shana is still dead. Or, as her parents, Sharon Grice and Richard Green put it, our daughter took her concerns to the police and, instead of being protected, was treated like a criminal. She paid for the police's lack of training, care and poor attitude with her life. It's only right that the police make changes, but it's too little too late for Shana. Sussex police should not be applauded for this. Then there's the case of a young woman in Scotland who managed to record her rape by her former boyfriend, a 16-minute tape that leaves nothing to the imagination, only to have him acquitted on a not-proven verdict. There's a complacency about male violence towards women across our criminal justice system, and until women start being believed, more will die and very few will see justice served. Meanwhile, Karen Ingala Smith, who runs the Vital Counting Dead Women campaign, noted on Twitter that a mutual housing society gave noise warnings to a woman victim of domestic violence and abuse because neighbours reported arguing. That's something she read in a domestic homicide review report. In other words, that woman is dead now. We all need to step up and believe women. Thanks very much for listening to our voices, but we're keen for you to treat your eyes and come look upon our faces. Our next gig at London's King's Place on April the 18th is a pre-Easter doozy featuring Helen Lederer, 
Jade Adams and the boss herself, Sarah Millican. It's also followed by a bank holiday. Well, hello, Mr Wine. Get in my mouth. Information and booking details for this and all of our upcoming events can be found at www.standardissuepodcast.com. Hi, we are joined in the studio, and by we, I mean Jen and I. Hello. By Georgie Laming, campaigns lead at Generation Rent and possessor of some very good news. But before we start with that, let's start with, if you could give us a rough idea of who Generation Rent are. So Generation Rent are the national voice of private renters. So there are 11 million private renters in the UK and they face all kinds of problems from, you know, your classic mouldy, damp houses that you can't get your landlord to fix to the insane prices to even get rented accommodation in the first place. So we are a tiny team of three people, but with loads of volunteers who help campaign to make change for private renters. Today, and this is Monday... You had some very good news about Section 21 evictions. Can you run us through what that means? Yeah, so we found out that this morning the government has announced they're going to abolish Section 21 evictions. Can you tell us what a Section 21 eviction is? Absolutely, because isn't it the wonkiest term you've ever heard? Yeah. So a Section 21 eviction, you might have actually had one and not realised that's what it's called. It's where your landlord gives you two months' notice to leave your house for no reason. They don't have to give you a reason. It could be because... They want to move back in or sell. It could be because you've asked for repairs and they're a bit sick of you. Uh, It could be because they want to hike the rent up. But essentially what it means is that any person who's not on a fixed term contract can, with no notice, just get, you know, evicted essentially. And the reason why this is so bad and why Generation Rent has been campaigning on this for years is because... For most people, when you move house, it costs on average £2,000. And right now, the rental market is really tough. I remember last year, it took me three months to find a house. And I share with four other people. So you'd think, you know, there are plenty of HMOs in London. So kind of big houses. So yeah, that's the section 21. It's really, really, really good news. The detail isn't ironed out yet on what that means. So if you do get a section 21 notice uh, in the next year or so, it probably is still valid. But yeah, it's it's proof that private renters are being listened to. Okay, now section 21 has already been abolished in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the repercussions on the Scottish market, are you in a position to see what's happened there? So whenever there's kind of call for better tenant rights, the thing that people say to you is, landlords will sell up, they won't want to be in the game anymore, or rents will go up. And we've seen that just isn't true. What it does is it creates what's called an indefinite tenancy. So it means that once you've signed, you basically have the tenancy for as long as you're paying rent and treating the property right and getting on with your landlord. So that's what it's doing. And it's going really well in Scotland. What I would say both for Scotland and for England, now that we're getting rid of these no-fault evictions, is what we need next is rent controls. Because really, even if your landlord can't evict you with two months' notice, they could hike the rent up so badly that you have to leave anyway. So yeah, rent controls, I think, are the next one on my list. Now, a lot of this problem seems to stem from the fact that at some point, you know, in the 80s, 90s, we stopped looking at houses as homes and we started looking at them as investments. And that is part of the issue here, isn't it? That people want a return on their investment so they have to sell. And in that case, they want the tenants out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But also part of the problem is is that often, you know, you're a tenant, you're told that your landlord is going to sell your house and then you see it two months later after you've moved up and the rent's gone up but it's still yeah. on the market. 
Um, and I think there is a return on investment. But I also think that Generation Rent is a great name and that it captures something. But it's not just millennials who are Generation Rent. My mum is, I hope she wouldn't mind me saying, in her 50s uh, and renting with two children under the age of 18. She could get a Section 21 tomorrow and she wouldn't know if her kids were going to be in the same school catchment area. Like, yeah. you know... It's a big issue, so I think... We'll be homeless. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's the leading cause of homelessness, yeah. Section 21. So you'll see people who, yeah, that £2,000 it costs to relocate, that two months to get yourself ready, lots and lots of people who can't get onto council housing lists and mm. can't afford hiked up rent end up homeless. I mean, this happened to um, Daisy May Hudson, who was on our podcast a while ago. Her, she's made a brilliant film about it called Halfway, where her mum, basically, it was the same sort of situation. and She'd spent two years in a hostel, basically, mm. with, with her kid. It's interesting that you say about your mum, because I think that there's a couple of things that when people think about who rents their mind goes to two places number one it's to single people Mm -hmm. and number two it's to people in cities and I'm guessing neither of those things are actually true yeah I mean my my mum lives in Lowestoft which is not a big kind of city hub yeah I think there's a lot of issues especially in kind of rural areas where if you get a section 21 in a rural area it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to find another house to rent in your village. So it's a real problem for rural areas, and we've been working with um, the Campaign to Protect Rural England on some of this stuff as well. One in four families rent. 30% of babies right now are being born into private renting. So this is definitely not a problem for people who kind of, you know, look and sound like me. Well, I mean, you think about the fact that we've talked about it quite a lot on this podcast, to be fair, but you think about the fact that I am 36 years old, I've got a decent job, I earn a decent wage, and my only route into the, you know, the the housing ladder, as it were, is shared ownership. So there are going to be an awful lot of people mm. of my age and older who are going to be in a situation where they cannot afford to buy a house ever. People quite often go to this, oh, but in, in Europe, people don't buy houses. But in Europe, they quite often have rent control, don't they? Mm. Yeah, Barcelona is looking at doing kind of a citywide referendum on how many uh, big landlords with kind of, you know, hundreds of homes there can be. Berlin's got yeah. rent, rent control. Uh, it's all of these, you know, lots of Scandinavian places. I mean, we always look to them for the good examples, don't we? Of, of like what kind of good living looks like. It's better to be a woman in some of these countries as well. It's not, it's not too much of a leap. I think that's really interesting, though, on like people kind of like growing up in the rented sector, because I think the reason why the Conservatives are making this announcement right now is because they're looking to find that kind of age range, you know, eight, 18 to 40 people who are renting. Like that's a massive vote winner for them. So I think we'll see over coming years like renters becoming a bit more of a political force than they have been in the past. When we were in Dublin last year, we spoke to Sheena Carhill, not as part of the podcast, just as part of the conversation. She is the head of the NUS over there. They have a massive problem in Dublin with Airbnb. Mm. Lots of people are stopping renting privately to people and realising they can make more money Airbnb. Is that, are you seeing impacts of that over here as well? Yeah, so it's actually probably going to be one of our next campaigns now oh, that really? Section 21 is ticked off the list. So yeah, seeing a lot of problems, especially again in rural areas where you know families are put on maybe shorter leases so that they can rent out in the summer. In Scotland, particularly around the fringe and around New Year, you will see 
landlords putting people on short-term contracts so they can get rid of them so in August they can rent them out. Mm-hmm. Or you're seeing people who are renting out properties that they don't need as big a property because they can make all of their money back in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So there's a campaign called Living Rent Up in Scotland. You do a lot of work on that. And it's not just Airbnb, but they're the one that everybody knows, right? Yeah. So part of the problem is that London have been looking at how they solved the Airbnb crisis. And one of the things they wanted to do was say, okay, there's a cap. There's a limit on how many days you can rent out a property on kind of a short-term let, and it would be 90 days. But the problem is, someone can do it for 90 days on Airbnb, and then they can move it to another website and do it again. And unless these big tech companies start working with local government, you're never really going to be able to tackle the crisis. But yeah, I think that's a big problem for families, especially because, you know, these rented homes are slightly bigger ones with more rooms so people can stay over and that mm. kind of thing. Well, the, the idea, honestly, the idea of moving house makes me want to start crying. <laughs> Just the idea that I would have to... I mean, I own my house now, mm. but, I mean, I did rent for years and years. And we had people say, oh, we're going to sell, and you had to move. And you had the added inconvenience of then you had people traipsing through your house all the time looking to buy it, which was horrible. And the idea just really horrifies me can I ask you with so many things in life that impact on society women are disproportionately impacted are you finding that that is happening here absolutely there are so many reasons why women find it tougher with renting I think the big thing is no DSS so if you go on Gumtree or Spare Room or any of those sites you'll see that lots of landlords won't accept people on housing benefit um, still still and um, part of the problem is is mortgage lending right so there are terms in the contract when you become a landlord that mean you can't but also it just doesn't seem like a good investment to them and women are much more likely to be single parents to be getting some sort of state benefit so that disproportionately affects them and also women are much less likely to complain about standards in renting so it's even if they're not losing their homes under a section 21 they're probably living in substandard accommodation because they don't want to rock the boat and then when you look at the fact women are more likely to have kids in the home than men are you know you're looking at children living in rooms with mold and damp because their mum doesn't want to complain because it's even worse because you can't find somewhere to move to next time so there's a whole cocktail for for women that makes it really really hard to be a private renter much more than men I think people are listening to this and they are in a rented um, rented accommodation and they think I'd like to get involved How do they go about Mm, doing that? I'm glad you asked. So, yeah, they can sign up on our website, which is generationrent.org forward slash sign up. And also find your local renters union. So across the country, there are renters unions. So these are small local groups that do collective kind of actions. So Acorn is one that's really big in Bristol. You've got Tenants Union UK in Manchester. If you search for them online, the great thing about these groups is they can train you on knowing your rights if you find something, something's gone wrong with your landlord, they're there to support you. They can often be there with you face to face. And these renter unions have been a big part of the campaign to end Section 21. So I'd really advise that. The reason that we come to places like Generation Rent is because we've had a problem rather than because we suddenly get interested in housing rights. So I'd really encourage anybody uh, who's renting and listening to the podcast to go just have a look now before the problem starts because uh, you're much more equipped to deal with it than when you're panic mode mm. of, am I going to have to move house? Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Georgie. Yeah, no, I loved it. Thank you. Hi. So, 
As you may have noticed, a few weeks ago we had the mental health campaigner Natasha Devon into the studio to talk to us about her latest project. While we had her, I decided to take the opportunity to talk to her about the long rumbling row about anti-Semitism in some areas of the Labour Party. Now obviously with Brexit going on, it's been quite difficult to keep up with what on earth is going on in politics. But recently, I found myself looped into a thread on Twitter that started as a conversation between Natasha and I, and then lots and lots of people joined in. And I saw a lot of stuff that was frankly eye-opening. And I wanted to talk to her about the abuse that some women get, the accusations of anti-Semitism in like I say, some areas of the Labour Party, but that have included some high-ranking members of the Labour Party. This is what she said. Natasha, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the current row that's going on with anti-Semitism and the Labour Party. Mm. Now, I have seen this go on, obviously, and I've had an opinion. And then I responded to a tweet that you sent the other day. Okay. A conversation we had was then retweeted by uh, Tracy Ann Oberman, which meant that I then got tagged into... An awful lot of stuff that people were sending to the pair of you. And mm-hmm. I was pretty horrified yeah. by it, to be honest. Is that your experience when you try to have that conversation on Twitter all the time? It's. Do you know what? <laughs> the only reason that I'm in this conversation at all, really, is because I'm friends with Rachel Riley, who has seen behind the curtain. Because for me, I think I would have been tempted to fall into that group of people who think that maybe it's a deliberate stick to beat the Labour Party with, that it's a kind of Tory conspiracy, etc, etc. But Rachel is, first of all, you should know, not a Tory. I mean, I don't know how she votes, but she's not right wing in any way. And secondly, she's obsessed with evidence. She has one of the most logical minds. Like if you can't measure it, she's not interested. So when she tells me things, I believe her. And for me, it was a massive shock to understand how how deep this goes, how unchallenged anti-Semitism is in the Labour Party. You know, whenever she says anything online, people pile in. And then I feel this need to back her up because she's my friend. And then you do, you just get, you're just mired in, you're just dogpiled forever by people who I, do, I don't understand what their incentive is other than anti-Semitism. Like they claim not to be anti-Semites and yet they apparently spend all day <laughs> trying to stop Jews from speaking about anti-Semitism, which is pretty anti-Semitic if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. What we were talking about was that essentially uh, she was being blamed for a cancer research charity not Mm. giving money. And it very much seemed like there was a case of she was being blamed for something that other people were doing, which, I mean, it's quite, I mean, it felt very much, look what you made me do, which was actually the point that I had made, Mm. you know. The papers wanting to destroy Jeremy Corbyn Mm. and Jeremy Corbyn possibly being anti-Semitic aren't mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean because one's happening, the other one might not be. What I think is very disturbing, whatever you think about Jeremy Corbyn, is the extent to which it is allowed to go on and not so he'll he'll say publicly i condemn anti-semitism i see it as a legitimate form of racism but his actions don't back that up so luciana berger literally bullied out of her own party and you think if she was any other race that would be completely unacceptable and i just think that a lot of people don't see anti-semitism as the same as other racism because there is a perception that that jews are more privileged than other races and therefore it's not punching down in the same way 
I now feel completely politically homeless. I have been a Labour voter my entire life. And um, I can't, like I, I said to Rachel rightly, I will never forgive you for this because I now know too much. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the argument is always that you get online, well, you, you know, the Tory party are anti-Semitic too. And I go, yeah, but I expect it from them. Oh, that's, absolutely. that's the thing. You know. Absolutely. The, 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 that is the thing that drives me. And um, Mr. Owen Jones is, is quite mm. a bad offender of this. If look what's going on over there. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't, that's a bit like saying Pol Pot is worse than Fred West. It, <laughs> the, it, the number of people that, that are involved in it doesn't mm. mean that it's not shameful. And equally, I think it's important to say just because the Times mm. is printing stories that Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic doesn't mean that they're not anti-Semitic right. either, I think. It's, the, yeah. It's, it's worth saying. Yes. I'm surprised, though, that people are surprised that there's racism in the Labour Party. Mm. When you look at the demographics or like the people forget that the Labour Party didn't always exist for, like, Guardian readers in Stoke Newington. Oh, that's a very similar idea that when people are very surprised at the sexism. Oh, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Why do you think anti-Semitism is still so rife? I think that it comes to the fore during times of economic struggle. There is a perception, and I don't really necessarily understand where it comes from. No, that's not true. I do. Okay, so there is a perception that Jewish people have more money than other races. And that's because the stereotype is forced out of their home, had to wander around, settle in places, got very savvy and good at making money because they had to. Now, that's obviously not true of all Jewish people, but that's the stereotype. So when people are feeling the pinch themselves, I think that they, they want someone to blame. I mean, it's not this is not a new story. No, <laughs> this obviously no, it's has happened fairly yeah. recently. But there's this whole thing, isn't there, of um, the, the, the right wing have kind of adopted this. Everything is goes back to George Soros. <laughs> conspiracy theory as well and you know what the terrifying thing is I, I interviewed a 95 year old holocaust survivor I say holocaust survivor she wasn't in a camp she escaped as a teenager she um, went back to her home from college and her parents had been taken and her neighbor stuck their head out the window and said they're coming back for you so she ran to the train station saw that there were loads of kids being evacuated and had the presence of mind to go to a fancy dress shop and put get a nurse's outfit <laughs> and say, I'm here to look after the children. So that's how she escaped wow. from Nazi Germany. But she was at a very interesting age when she escaped because she was old enough to remember the build-up. And most people who are Holocaust survivors are either dead or they were children at the time. So when I was talking to her, I was talking to her about the headlines and she said, the things I see in the tabloids, it's the same. She was like, we, she said, everyone laughed at Hitler in the same way we are laughing at Trump. This was before Trump got elected that we were having this conversation. And she could see the parallels. And what I don't understand is why something that has happened in living memory, we haven't learned from. I think if it was 100 years time, maybe I'd be able to understand it slightly more. It's those cycles are getting shorter. Mm. As someone who deals with mental health, mm. is there a connection there? <laughs> um, Yes. Well, there, there's definitely a connection between racism and mental health. Belonging is a really key psychological human need. So, for example, if you're a first generation immigrant, it makes you more vulnerable to, to poor mental health because you're not having that need serviced. Mm -hmm. The more hostility you face, the more likely you are to, to struggle with your mental health. When people talk about the relationship between race and mental health, they very often say, well, it's not talked about in that community. And so the blame is put back on them mm -hmm. as opposed to looking at what we can do.
Okay, what can we do? Well, um, I think I think it, it don't be racist. <laughs> yeah, don't, ideally, don't be a dick. Fundamental start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't Good be time. a dick is the rule for life. Don't be everyone. a dick. Yeah. yeah, it can be summed up by I was talking to this sixth form boy. His parents were from Ghana, and he was in a kind of predominantly white school in Surrey. And he came up to me after I'd done a talk on mental health. And he was like, this isn't strictly relevant, but can I talk to you about something? And I said, yeah. And he said, I just want to know if you think this is wrong or not. And I always get that because they think that I'm going to side with them over their teachers, which I normally do, to be fair. And, um, <laughs> and he said um, they were doing citizenship. And his teacher had said to him, what do you think that you can do to integrate yourself more into English culture? This is a guy that was born wow. in England. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty wrong. And I was also, I also said, it's also the wrong question. Because it, it, say you were a first genera- generation immigrant, the question should be, what can we do to make you feel more welcomed and included? Yeah. Thank you, Natasha. You're welcome. Don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Hannah here constant interrupter just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do you can help us by rating and reviewing us on itunes it really does help especially if you give us five stars did that sound threatening enough give us five stars we are joined by writer and star of the new play fighter libby Leibert. hello hi fighter is Mm -hmm. inspired by the pioneering british female boxers that fought for their right to fight Tell us a bit about it. Ah, very good leading. I like it, I like it. So I used to box. Yeah. I say I used to. I'm still, I'm boxing training for this show, but I used to fight a little while ago. So this is your little history lesson, which -hmm. which teams into what I did. So I fought white collar level, which is unlicensed. And the two main levels of boxing in Britain are amateur and professional. Now, I couldn't go either route because I was a little bit old when I started boxing. So that didn't happen for me. So when I started to box, obviously I fell in love with it. I had fights, just loved it. And I wasn't making theatre at that time. I was just kind of being a mum and trying to get acting jobs and so on and so forth. So it wasn't like I stepped into a boxing gym with an idea to write a play. But many years later, (laughs) after I wrote Motherhood and Temporary, and then I started to have those thoughts again of writing something about female boxers. And the thing that was most intriguing for me is that people don't know the history of female boxers in this country. And it's like, very interesting. It's very interesting. Do you know any female boxers by name? Could you give me a little history lesson? Because no, I do not. Gorgeous. I do. Oh, who do you know? Oh, um, Nicola Adams, obviously. Yeah. Um, Katie mm, Taylor. Love Katie Taylor. Yeah. And who was the first? This is the like long-winded version. So the ABA, which is the Amateur Boxing Association of Britain, they're now called England Boxing, to make things even more confusing, had a ban on women boxing. To, and that ban was 116 years. And they only lifted the ban in 96. So on an amateur level, the first sanctioned fights were coming through in 97. And then on a professional level, the first female professional licensed British boxer, because we have to say it all in that long-winded way, because <laughs> most of our boxers went to America to fight because yeah. they couldn't be licensed in Britain. Because she was actually fighting in other countries, wasn't she? Wasn't she? she just couldn't do it she here. She wasn't indeed, so yeah. she wasn't allowed to get a license here. And her name is Jane Couch, and what she did was she took the board of boxing to court to get her license. She took them to a sex discrimination tribunal, 
and won. Yay! What was the reason that they gave initially Uh for not allowing her to box? Yes, so their main reason in a court of law, openly they said that premenstrual tension made women too unstable to box. (laughs) They actually, this is an actual real thing. Actual thing that they did in 98. So we're not talking about like 1950s. No. And then the second ever professional licensed female boxer in Britain was Kathy Brown. And Kathy Brown is ambassador for Fighter. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So how did you meet her? So I kept in touch with some of the girls that I boxed with. They became very good friends of mine. And for one of my birthdays, they bought me a training session with Kathy Brown. And I met her there because they knew how much I loved her. They knew I was like, oh, my God, Kathy Brown. She's so inspirational. So they bought me a training session with her. And I went in and us three trained with her as a birthday treat birthday treat that nearly killed me off so. <laughs> um, and that's how I met her and kept in touch with her ever since also you oh. are working with on this project you're working with the fight for peace academy oh, who I, I went to chat to for our international men's day special podcast last year how did that come about so I did a little work in progress of fighter back in March 2018 and they brought down some of their young boxers to watch the little work in progress of fighter now I'd always had this idea for fighter that I wanted actual boxers boxing on stage but it didn't come about for the work in progress we just had projections of my son basically doing some boxing but they brought down some young people who were like oh my god we love it we love it we love it so much I'm so thank you thank you and I thought oh I wonder so I started to talk to them and have conversations with them about my idea to have boxers on stage and I've been going up to the academy a lot and meeting the boxers and chatting to them so it's been a long process of us kind of all getting to know each other and that's how that kind of came about and that's what we're we're doing so there will be boxers from five piece on stage in fighter what is the storyline of fighter so the storyline of fighter is a single mum right what you know (laughs) steps into a boxing gym essentially by accident in the 90s so I've set it in the 90s because that's when everything was going on my character goes into the gym quite by accident, realises she's not allowed in the gym because it's very much male-dominated environment. She's told you can't come in, you can't come back. And then that obviously she's got that bloody-minded, gritty-teeth character. So being told no makes her go, uh, no, I think I'll come back again. And it follows her from her process of learning to box and how that changes her and how that changes her trainer, how it changes him as well, and follows right through that experience. What do you love about boxing? Was it great getting back in the ring? I feel like I love everything about it. Like, when I was making this show, a lot of people were obviously saying, you're going to challenge sexism and and misogyny in the sport. And it's important that we challenge misogyny in the sport. And men are very much against women boxers and so on. But when I started boxing, I had my kid in tow. And I remember the first ever gym I went to, I literally rung him up and I was like, I can't get childcare. They were like, bring him down. Bring him down. So... I was always respected very much as a mum. Yeah, I, there was sexism towards me as a woman. But as a mum, like I could have my kid with me, present, and so he could see me mm. learning to do this like, badass thing in a really male-dominated environment and just loving it and the heart behind it. It's always the kindest environment for women, but boxers themselves have great loyalty, great heart, and that's what I always come back to. That's what I love about it. That's what I always loved about it. 
the mental benefits, physical benefits, everything across the board. I think that's why it's used so much with kids, like at the Fight yeah. for Peace Academy. Mm-hmm. There were other arguments put forward, mm-hmm. weren't there? Mm-hmm. One, one of them was like the risk of breast cancer mm-hmm. from being punched in the chest, and mm-hmm. head injuries, which actually isn't specifically for mm-hmm. women. That's that's for everyone. But how have those arguments stood up? I don't know if the if the gendered arguments have been researched at all. I don't think anybody actually did any research surrounding that. Like when they kind of put forward those arguments, it was all very much like, oh, we'll have a guess. Women have got breasts. Maybe that'll be a problem. I mean, there so, is a staggering lack of research about yeah. exercise and women in general mm, there is yeah so people have just decided they don't care anymore rather than investigate whether or not it was actually a problem I think in the first so time, I right? think so I mean I personally haven't seen any studies that say oh yeah they were right about what they were saying they just came up with this kind of set of really sort of gendered ideas like these weird stereotypes about oh well, like I say they've got breasts they have periods this can't, this can't work, can't work in a boxing gym, let's think of loads of ideas. It is true that women are different from men in a boxing environment. There's certain things like making weight, like if you're, if you're getting ready for a fight, you've got to weigh in at a certain weight and everyone has that dread of like if you're on your period or due on your period, you, re- you retain water, you might put on a pound or two and that's a nightmare for making weight. So there are certain things that make us different as fighters but if you look at women fighters generally and you look at their fights, you will see there's, a, there's also a huge positive difference. Like you'll see a lot of the men's fights, they'll kind of hang on to each other when they're tired. That's very rare for women to do. Women are quite... Their work rate is high. They're just getting on with it, getting it done. <laughs> yeah. Getting it done. Got shit to do, mate. Got shit to do. Going back into boxing now, mm. how do, different is it? I think it's a better landscape generally. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things happening. Like There are all female boxing shows happening now. I mean, you, you, there's two arguments with that, isn't there? That having an all-female boxing show is great because it's bringing up women and it's elevating the sport. But also, why can't we all be on the the same card so I think it is changing and certainly with Katie Taylor there's been huge inroads made because Katie Taylor won a big fight on like the 15th of March so very very recently she won a huge fight and that had television coverage and she's got a huge promoter and so it does kind of prove that people are now starting to watch women's fights Mm -hmm. they're starting to buy into them but it's very, it's baby steps. Katie Taylor comes from a boxing family, yeah. doesn't she? I mean, and obviously Layla Ali comes from a, a boxing family. Do you think more women are coming in that don't have a previous link? Uh, is it attracting a wider range of women into it now? I would reckon so. Yeah, I would reckon so. Like, I'm training in a gym at the moment. I'm training ready for the show, and there aren't any women there, so I don't get to speak to any women and say, oh, how did you end up here? But it is an old-school spit and sawdust boxing gym, and it's you just walk in, and you have to kind of know what you're doing already. So I, I, I don't think it's always welcoming to a beginner. But there are gyms that are actively encouraging women to come through that are really saying our classes are all inclusive, they're ready for anybody, you just come in at whatever age as well. And I think starting anyone, women, men, starting them younger as well, so that they start to have that feeling of this is okay and this is my space and I'm okay to be in that space is yeah it's a great beneficial thing so I think more and more so with if you turn on the telly and you can see Katie Taylor and you can see what she's doing 
then you're more likely to want to go into that regardless of whether you have a background in boxing or not. So it just comes down to representation again, isn't it? Like if you can see somebody doing Mm. it, you're more likely to think I can do that. Whereas we've kind of had years and years if you couldn't see women doing it. So why would you think you could unless you had the background of a boxing family? I went and did a little bit of training WWE wrestling. Oh. Yeah, with some women wrestlers, oh, Lana nice. Austin, who was amazing. And I just wondered, when they were talking about women's wrestling matches, there's a big fight to get them to be recognised as equal to the men's fights. Mm-hmm. Is there a similar thing in boxing? Yep, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's it just comes down to the fact that it's a male-dominated sport. It always has been a male-dominated sport. Like our little history lesson earlier, if we look at that, if we're making huge turnarounds in a period of like just over 20 years. The fact that we've got any women fighting on the telly Mm. is probably a small miracle given that time period. I think boxing struggles anyway. I can remember absolutely being so livid with the BBC during 2012 Mm. because they had all of the boxing was on the red button. Do you think it is that whole idea of boxing you said it earlier spit and sawdust it's yeah. quite working class it's background yeah. do you think that has an effect <laughs> totally it, it is it is that and a lot of studies have been done surrounding this and surrounding why boxing is perceived often as this sort of barbaric sport you know there's a lot of talk about oh it's just two men in the ring I saw something after one of the major fights I can't remember who it was I think it was probably an AJ fight or something like that it's just basically two blokes going in the ring lamping each other in the head which speaks nothing of the Mm. amount of training you have to do the amount of technicality that you have to display you know so. I think until you actually had a go at it yourself though, yeah it's really hard to actually appreciate how much exactly. work and how much skill is involved oh, I don't know exactly. if you've seen Rocky I reckon you can get a, a, an idea oh, I, I mean there's a lot of training montages oh, yeah. I appreciate there's a lot of training I love the training montages I love them best bit yeah, but I think it. I think it's something to do with that. They're not recognising the level of discipline. Also, the, I, again, but there were studies done about the most dangerous sports, and boxing isn't ranked that high up. You know, you're looking think at things like NFL must be up there. NFL like that, yeah. and rugby yeah. and horse riding. Because if you come a cropper off a horse, it's all over, isn't it? But I think a horse right you you know you've got to have a lot of money to get on a horse and so maybe it is maybe it just comes down to a class thing i've seen a bunch of things in the last sort of six months so mm-hmm. there's a film by jessica hines oh, yeah. which is the called fight. the fight the fight yeah and i've just i saw a play about six months ago by it was written by joy wilkinson which was called the sweet science of bruising yeah. there's quite a lot of sort of women boxing yeah. stuff going on at the moment what do you think is driving that does seem to be a sudden rush mm. but having said that there have been plays that have been dotted around the periods of 2012 the olympics bitch boxer and mighty atoms as well so there have been these plays dotted about so i don't know if it's just because we're maybe noticing them more maybe it's something to do with hashtag me too or or women just feeling generally more empowered to tell their stories. Oh, well, boxing has always been used as a vehicle yes. for for poetry or for like commentary mm-hmm. or it social has. commentary yeah. and stuff. So women just I think have been given access to that world now, mm. haven't they? Right. So Libby, yes. we can come and watch Fighter. Yes, well done. At the Stratford Circus Arts Centre from April the 25th to the 27th. Yeah. Where can we find you? 
on you can find me on the Twitter mm -hmm. which is at Libby Liburd L-I-B-B-Y L-I-B-U-R-D I'm trying to do the Instagram but that's not quite so successful same thing at Libby Liburd and then the hashtag for the play is hashtag fighter the play and then I've got a website which is www uk, and I should also say that with them shows 25th to the 27th we've got a matinee on the Saturday which has an on-site crash as well so Yay. yeah good work. big up big up so if you've got a kiddie and you don't want to leave them in the corner Libby thank you so much thank you for having me hey there you lot if you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media and why wouldn't you because you're only human you can we're on twitter as a team at standard issue uk or individually on at inspiragen at that dunleavy and at mixta noonan and i'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who we're on facebook as well at standard issue magazine and even instagram at standard issue podcast come to us look at our faces you play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we hand out a big old red card to douchebags as we discuss all things women's sport. It's a bit more general than women's sport centric this week as I caught up with Sarah Train, one of Kick It Out's professional clubs and equality officers, to talk about the rather topical issue of racism in football which you've no doubt seen covered in the press recently the names i mention in this section you're about to hear are dudes but it is affecting all levels of the game from grassroots to professional and you may also have seen there have been recent higher profile situations in the women's game involving for example renee hector at spurs we talked about this and a load more including lgbtq plus issues in sport and football particularly and the longer version you'll be able to hear as part of a sort of sporty series of chops going out in may and in the meantime if you want to find out more about kick it out's work you can find out more on their website kickitout.org or by following them on twitter at kick it out I'm joined by Sarah Train, Professional Clubs Equality Officer for the South at Kick It Out. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Jen. So you guys are celebrating your 25th year. We are. This year. And you have been in the press quite a lot recently, rather unfortunately. I think probably the thing that most listeners would have heard about in the press is the Manchester City footballer Raheem Sterling and recently Danny Rose, who mm. plays for Spurs, mm. who have both been quite vocal about the racism that they've experienced as players. Yeah. And that's been very high profile because Danny Rose even went as far as to say that he's sort of looking forward to finishing his career so yeah. he doesn't have to deal with this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Which is horrifying. Yes, it is. And I think we're all uh, in agreement that that is completely horrifying. Unfortunately, it's of no surprise. And it was only going to be a matter of time before a high profile player like Danny came out and said that basically enough is enough. Our educational head of development, rather, um, Troy Townsend, is very, very vocal and he's been in the press an awful lot recently discussing this case in particular. But it's just one of many, many incidents and, and many experiences that players have at all tiers of the football national leagues in this country. 
and Danny and Raheem are in a position where they're mouthpieces basically for you know many many players that experience similar things but yeah it's a sad situation it's an angering situation it's an upsetting situation and it's one that we are trying to deal with from a kick it out perspective in working with both the players and the clubs to address the issues that are driven and manifested by so many different things both within football stadiums or outside we're all aware that there are drivers to, to situations like this from a political standpoint. And we've all got our own, you know, very, very strong opinions on those. But what we have to focus on as a campaigning body is making sure that we work within the confines of, of football and work with the governing bodies and other stakeholders to ensure that, that messages of, of strength and unity and, and zero tolerance gets out there in as many forms and as many ways as possible so that we can all collectively continue to challenge you know, racism and other forms of discrimination that are very prevalent within the game. How big a problem is this? Because um, we're told it's a minority mm, of fans, but it's starting to look to me like this is a much bigger problem than any of us sat at home watching on the telly maybe understand. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would agree with that. I would agree that it is a far bigger problem than people are aware of. I would agree that it is the minority of fans that have such such opinions and and choose to verbalize and behave in a way that you know in in normal everyday society uh, would be completely unacceptable it's against the law you know there are hate crimes um, being committed uh, every week within stadiums and we work closely with the clubs and the football policing units to make sure that we we can deal with them in the best way that we can and those ways often end in football banning orders but a large part of what we try and do is work within um, education and training and provide education and training for people that are accused and, and found you know found to be behaving like this the size of the problem of course is as i said before it's a lot bigger than anybody i think would understand these things have always been there. We know that the press are covering incidences that include uh, verbal abuse, but this happens in the professional game and it happens at grassroots level as well. One would argue or could argue that we're more aware of it now, obviously because of press coverage, the impact that social media can have as a platform for good and bad, but also reporting procedures have improved by both us, you know, using, we've got a Kick It Out app that every single club promotes. We've also got a Kick It Out direct reporting email. We have two dedicated reporting officers here who work closely, as I said before, with the football policing units and the clubs. Most clubs also have the facility for fans to report directly to them. It's just a case of improving processes, making sure that people feel comfortable and safe to report because people often feel fearful about reporting for a number of different reasons, particularly if personal details have to be divulged. Obviously, we can here at Kick It Out, we can report and work with clubs uh, without having personal details from whoever it is that's reporting incidences. And we also work with the FA when it's in excess of five people that, that are participating uh, in, in behaviours that are unacceptable. I don't know if incidences are on the increase or whether we're just more alert to them coupled with the reporting procedures. But in terms of the high-profile incidences with, with Raheem and Danny particularly... 
you know, although it's it's forcing the issue, it's forcing people to sit up and take notice and, and, and act directly, we obviously don't want these incidences to be there. And the whole idea of, of Kick It Out and what we do is that we eliminate discrimination in all its forms. But it is a particularly contentious time in history and we're very aware of that. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. What Vision of Future Hell did you watch this week? This week we watched 1973's Soylent Green, which stars Perpetual Man of the Future, Charlton Heston. But no monkeys. No monkeys. Also lots and lots of people who I had no idea who they were, with the exception of Edward G. Robinson, and it's his 101st film. It's partly police thriller and it's partly dystopian future thing. And it was based on a book called Make Room, Make Room by someone called Harry Harrison. So when are we? We are in 2022. So, you know, soon. My bank card lasts longer than that. We're in New York and in a natty little scene they do at the start... They show you that basically America used to have no fucker in it. Then there's more and more in industrialisation. And basically what's happened by 2022 is that everywhere, and, and you've got to assume it is everywhere, but certainly within America, is overcrowded. The population has expanded to, to the degree that we no longer have the natural resources to sustain those people. 40 million just in uh, New York City. I mean, they are living arse cheek by jowl. Every staircase is full of white people. Meanwhile, a police detective called Frank Thorne is investigating the murder of a man who lives in a fancy set of flats. That's, that is Charlton Heston. Of course, so obviously, because of course he yeah, does. He shares a flat. He's quite lucky. He's got a flat. He doesn't have to sleep in a stairwell or, or a car or many of the other places that literally people are just like crammed right into. It's like my train this morning. It's just like faces <laughs> pressed up against everything. Uh, he's investigating this murder and it is possibly, spoiler alert, it is linked to food is rationed out on a sort of government level by a company called Soylent who create a number of what look like plastic tabs that you eat that are a variety of colours. The newest version being Soylent Green. It's a superfood, Hannah, and apparently much better than Soylent Red and Soylent Yellow. Yeah. There's a lot more excitement around Soylent Green. Mm. Are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? We start with technology, because technology is always the thing that makes me laugh. Did you see that she has a, a an arcade game in it? Yes. Okay, did you see what that arcade game was called? Space Kill. It was called Computer Space. And I thought, <laughs> that is the worst made up. Now, I googled it. It's a real fucking thing. Really? Really? Yeah. It's a real game? That is actually a real game that existed. Basically, they have no technology in this at all. They have to ride a bike in order to, to make the light bulb come on. What Hannah isn't telling you is the reason Jen's quite quiet is she is riding a bike to keep the microphones working. <laughs> it's true. Obviously, the, the internet doesn't exist, but he does have this guy called Saul, who is basically Google. Because not many people can remember how to read. So Saul no. is a book. Yeah. Well, that, see, that is interesting as well, because there's a bit in it about books, obviously, and I think actually it might be Sol, because it's Solomon, isn't it? Yeah. Sol. So Sol says that... He's quite nostalgic for books. In this case, it's not because everyone's got a Kindle. It's because... No one can read no anymore. No one can read anymore. Everybody's forgotten how to read. Should, should we go yeah. there? Should we talk about the role of women in Soylent Green? <laughs> well, I mean, all dystopias basically tell you more about the time that they were made than the time that they are projecting. And this is... Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, women. Women in this are literally called furniture. Oh, shells. And they come with the flat, and anyone is allowed to fuck them, it appears. And (laughs) they have very full lives in which they like to touch their own hair and then touch other people's hair. Oh, a gathering of the furniture is basically what every straight man dreams a lesbian get-together is. There was no pillow fight. That was the only thing missing. There is a moment in which Frank Thorne decides to just go and stand up and interview them by sticking his groin in their face one by one and then just saying really provocative things to them and then says, come in the room and fuck me, basically, to this woman who goes off and does it. Falls in love with him. That's believable. So, yeah, women are treated appallingly in this. Whether or not you think that's as bad as it is now, I don't know. What do you reckon? Can I just say they're not all furniture. Some of them are poor and some of them get shot. Mm. Or punched in the face. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of, like... I thought it was very handmade tale. There was very much that sort of dystopia for women in that they are property again. Absolutely. And do you know what's crazy is that he goes in there, demands that he shags her. She does it. But he hasn't had a bath in like six months. that's horrific. And then this guy turns up and punches him in the face and he gets to be the hero, despite the fact that he's treated all of them like shit as well. That, and even, that really rankled with And me. even when they start to have, I'm going to, I mean, I am using heavy inverted commas here, a relationship with furniture piece called Shirl, then he still refers to her as furniture. Yeah. And she oh. says, please, can you stop calling me that? I, it makes me sad. And he goes, okay. And then she, like, thanks him as if it's the nicest thing that's ever happened to anyone, ever. He doesn't even really, like, demand sex, does he? He says, come into this room, and then she just gets her kit off. No, he says, get on on the the bed. bed. There didn't seem to be any sort of menace or threat in it. It was just like, she she was just like, all right, cool. I think that's the whole point of just meant that demand, like, didn't. It seemed like quite a strong term for it. Should we talk about fashion? A lot of dystopian films made in the 70s and a lot of dystopian fashion is 1970s fashion. Mm-hmm. This, I can't quite... They're all dressed like... The only way I can put my explain to you what they look like, they sort of look like they're in Civil War, but at the same point, they also look a little bit like they're dressed up to be in the Peasants' Revolt, but they got the stripper version of Peasant Revolt clothes. There's a lot of bare chests and, and short sleeves and... Bare chests and waistcoats. Yeah. He looks like a fucking railway children extra or something. Maybe of mice and men. A porn version of of mice and men. Well, that's interesting because, of course, they are a lot like the Okies. Yeah. In that they're people who just turned up and lived in encampments. Uh, Anywhere they could get a space. Yeah. And it's hot, so he wears a neckerchief Mm, and he's constantly dabbing his brawny neck. The police don't have a uniform except when they put an American football helmet on when (laughs) they're going to go to the riot. Until you get shot at and then the first thing you do, guys, is take that helmet off. Yeah, Yeah, why not? (laughs) I'm not sure that helmet would stop a bullet, if I'm honest. That was an incredible scene. (laughs) It's it's really interesting. I thought the house style, the house that, that they live in, that flat... That actually seemed quite spot on. And it was half Ikea, half Darnelm. It had like metal flowers <laughs> that were like sticking up. I thought that's actually not that far off. Darnelm clearly exists in 2022. I don't know. Debenhams has just, just gone, mate. I feel like it might yeah. be jinxing it into receivership. Yeah, who knows? What about the cars? They're not flying, are they? They're not flying. No, they're mostly being used as houses <laughs> yeah. in this. There is, of course, the wonder that makes this film almost worth watching for 
the scoop. The scoop. That was it. Yeah, talk about the scoop. There is nothing more glorious. I, I don't think there's anything more funny, but also anything I can more likely imagine Theresa May shouting than the scoops are on their way. The scoops are on their way. <laughs> the, the scoops are basically like trucks with this shovel thing on the front, and the they bulldozers. Yeah, but they scoop obviously. They're just diggers, aren't they? And they throw people into the back of it and drive them off where to no one knows no one knows can guess though mm. basically look like fisher price things that everyone's supposed to be terrified they of. look like bob the builder's evil twin is hard at work <laughs> the scoops are coming the scoops are on their way they look but i tell you what the filmmakers bloody love the scoops that scoop scene goes on for a full hour yeah <laughs> it, feel, it felt like a full hour and <laughs> and the weird thing is despite the fact angle. at this point they're supposed to be panic everyone is facing the scoops <laughs> When they get scooped up by them. Nobody's, like, looking in the other direction. Nobody's trying to run away. Politics? That's kind of what's lacking in this film, is that there seems to be an utter absence of any politics, either with a big P or a small P. Oh, I don't know. I think I disagree with you on this. I think it's a sort of shady government run by corporations. Yes, and there is obviously this guy Santini who is yeah, the like the, running to be the governor. And he's but hand in hand with Soylent. Exactly, but there doesn't seem to be the idea that that any of these people, the mob, are in any way engaged with politics. No, it seems to be something that exists on a like on a high level. And there's certainly no considering it was made in the seventies. There's nothing even resembling a, a women's lib arm of the world. Does it have a Cassandra moment? Should we be learning lessons from Soylent Green? Well, funnily enough, I'm going to say yes. And that is the question of questioning what we eat. Now, I know that what we eat has become a bit more topical. Veganism is growing. People are trying to eat more responsibly and environmentally awarely and all of that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand... It's only a couple of years ago. Turned out that IKEA meatballs were made from horses. So you can only try so hard if they actually tell you correctly what is in that food. Yes, that is true. So I actually think I would say, as in, are we now in 2022, will we be in a position where we're actually going to have to pay attention to what we eat? Are there going to be food shortages? can quite easily envisage some of those things happening yeah Yeah, i've got to say watching it although some of it is bonkers and obviously the denouement is one predictable two outrageous it felt eerily prescient it's not that far removed that i couldn't imagine it being real with like overpopulation food shortage global warming because it's hot all the time so the water's gone everyone's very sweaty everyone's Mm. very sweaty and i remember summer last year so i can see that as a permanent thing so it was Quite scary in that I thought some of this could actually happen. Yeah, I agree. In fact, I actually think there's a really good film in this, just waiting to (laughs) be not led by Charlton Heston and to be dealt with in a slightly different way. Because, spoiler alert, Soylent Green, this sounds like a political slogan, but it's actually the the daily mill of the plot, Soylent Green is papal. And I think the interesting question in this film is not that people find out about this and it causes basically a moral collapse, it sends a priest mad. Actually, the interesting point of this is I think he should have found that out halfway through and then seen what the mob's response to Soylent Green being papal. Because... Do you think a hungry mob would just be like, all right? That's that's what makes this... That's what Mm. I think is the interesting point in this. So I do think there's... And there's also... I think there's also a half-decent comedy in here. Because 
there's this great bit in it was, oh, by the way, DNA hasn't happened. Because when there's a murder scene, the first thing he does is just go and spray his own DNA all over it. He has a shower. He steals stuff. He lies down on beds. He, he sticks looks, his armpits in the air conditioning. It's just like, he looks at the body and immediately just gets it removed. <laughs> it's crazy. There's literally like, there's no police investigation. There's obviously goes backwards by 2022. But actually, I think that some of that stuff could be funny if it was played for laughs. The fact that he just takes a pillowcase and starts stealing stuff from it. and If we had Leslie Nielsen instead yes, of Charlton Heston. Maybe. <laughs> like a naked gun film. Yeah. So I feel like there's either a, a good morality play in here or there's a good comedy in here, but they don't know. The scoops are on their way. They don't know what's... But it does also have an absolutely hilarious but yet not played for laugh punch-up, which takes place in a church full of people... And it includes them just punching people out of bunk beds and bunk beds falling over. And the weird thing is nobody reacts to it until it's right next to them. And then they scream and then they stop. Some people wake up and actually rub their eyes like that and go, (laughs) oh, there's a man shooting in here, is there? On the topic of eyes, there's a lot of strong eyeball work goes on. There is. In Soylent Green, just if anyone wants to look surprised and they widen their eyes to sort of... Marty Feldman, degrees of wideness. Some, oh, it's, it's amazing. Charlton Heston is so one-dimensional. They also absolutely squander the potential to have a punch-up on a production line, which everybody knows is just like the best place for anyone to have a fight. Yeah. You know what else is big in, in dystopia? Euthanasia mm. is always big in dystopia. And actually, I'm going to say, this is a, there's, there's one weird strand in this film that's actually really good, which is Edward G. Robinson. Who, Agreed. there's a couple of bits in it where he's absolutely marvellous, including him crying at beef. And then being angry that he's crying at beef because life used to be better. And what, what is his beef with beef? He takes himself off. When he finds out Silent Green is people, he can't live with it. And he decides he's had enough of the world and he takes himself off to be euthanised. Now, what is absolutely... going home. What is absolutely staggering about this is that what Edward G. Robinson knew when he filmed that scene and nobody else knew was that he had cancer and it was terminal and he actually died 12 days after it was shot. Oh, my goodness. Which is staggering to think that he actually did that knowing it was just around the corner for him himself. I feel a bit bad making a joke about this now, but... Um, no, joke away, I'm sure he'd appreciate it. I mean, it. we've all seen how Charlton Heston reacts to yeah. it, so... Well, what... What struck me about it was that what they use to kill him appears to be they seem to show him fantasia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what does it for him. And and yeah. I think we can all relate to that. So yeah, just, just yeah, I wanted to die during <laughs> fantasia. And there was one other thing that I thought was quite interesting is that nobody at any point in this film mentioned any other things that have been done to actually control the population at all. And I wonder whether that's Going back to what I was saying earlier about American abortion, I wonder whether that's because even in Hollywood, the idea of actually taking measures to stop people having more kids was seen as something that you couldn't actually talk about. Far be it from me to call for the restrictions of people's rights to fuck, but <laughs> got a step on the church to sleep on, mate. Best have some more kids. <laughs> I mean, Maybe give out sexy. birth control? I don't know. How many Arnie's? Arnie's, as in, is it a good film? California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, that's for whether or not it's a good film. It's not a particularly good film. Like I say, I think Edward G. Robinson will get it one star. And and maybe the idea 
that there is a good film in there waiting to get out, we'll give it a half a star. So I would say one and a half Arnie's. Okay. Top Arn- half of Arnie. The top not the half of Arnie. Half, yeah. It's quite muscular. It's oh, quite dear. a muscular one don't and a half th- stars. I yeah. don't want to think about either half of Arnie. And what about, and you get to the top half, Arnie. As in, is it a decent prediction of the future? Yes. I'm going to give it three. It's pretty bang on for mm-hmm. the present. <laughs> a lot of it. Yeah. Just mm. a reminder, 2022. Watch what you're eating. Anybody got a choice what one do next time? We could do Blade Runner. We could do Rollerball. We could do Death Race. Let's do Blade Runner. Because that at least has got flying cars, whereas in uh, Soil yeah, of Green, no flying cars. But the scoops are coming. The scoops are coming. Standard Issue. For all women.